but there are no points for polish at all. But I would say it is, in my view, has the most beautiful invitation. And that, I think, is something for us to think about today because the question I think that this scripture raises for us is what does it look like to step into a place of personal renewal and yet corporate revival? So what does it look like for to enter, to re-enter into the purposes of God to see and experience significant change that can only come through the grace of Jesus? And that has such an effect on the people and the place around us that there is a significant move of the Holy Spirit which people might call a revival. Because I think it is in the letter to the church at Laodicea. So let's read this together, shall we? To the angel of the church in Laodicea writes, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I love verse 15. I know your deeds. Oh dear. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich and I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. This is when it shifts slightly, folks. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. One of the things that I would say that, that, I've, um, that I have reflected on or I, I have grown from is, and one of the things I'd say I've benefited from is having people point out my blind spots. When I went off in October for three and a half months, uh, that journey was brutally painful. Uh, and one of the reasons, one of the, there's many, many reasons for that, but, but one, of, one of the kind of the, the moments that most arrested my attention was having people who I don't know, who don't know me, point out things in me that you probably see, that certainly my wife sees, certainly the team around me see, but I didn't see. It was things that I said, it was, it was things that were revealed in what I said, that revealed attitudes that I thought I was concealing, but they were blind spots. 
And for me, that came from two specific people. One was a, a spiritual director, a lady that I speak to once a month, and, and she kind of helps you deal with your soul. And she's very holy. So I always, you know, you've got to make sure you get all, do all your confession, because I think she sees it. And it's on Zoom as well, but I think she can still see it through Zoom. So I'll just make sure it's all cool. And then I saw a therapist for three and a half months. And what I noticed is both of them independently were beginning to point out things in me that I, that I just could not see. But as they began to point it out, I was like, ah, that makes perfect sense. Even if it's really hard to accept. And what is happening here is Jesus is, is writing to the church in Laodicea. And he is pointing out their significantly massive blind spots. And what he's noticing is that the church has taken on and absorbed the culture of the city. So Jesus starts off by saying, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. So once again, and we see these themes throughout the book of Revelation, that Jesus is reminding the church that he is the one who holds the whole thing together. Not only is he one that holds the whole thing together, he says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold, I will wish you were one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Okay, there's a little bit of context here to Laodicea that is really, really helpful. Laodicea was a place of massive wealth. It was a, a center for banking. It was a center for agriculture. And it was a center for medicine. And in fact, it was one of the world's leading medical centers, particularly in the study of ophthalmology. So not only was it very, very wealthy, uh, it was famed for its a very a certain type of wool, which you could only get in Laodicea, and that wool was black. And it made a, they made very, very special tunics. And if I had my notes, I'd tell you what the tunics were called, but I don't. Who cares? Our life isn't going to change at all, is it? Unless you're in a pub quiz and somebody says, in Laodicea, what was the name of their tunics? I have no idea. You could Google it right now. Tell me on Wikipedia. Fine. But so, so, so whenever you would go to Laodicea, they'd all wear black. And as you'd see Laodiceans traveling, traversing through the area, you could spot them a mile off because they were wearing black. And that black symbolized success. It was very, very expensive. It was absolute high quality. And you know, there was an earthquake in AD 60 that rocked the whole region. And all of the other, the big cities in the area had to cry out to Rome to help them to, re get, to rebuild their cities, but not Laodicea. Because Laodicea did it by themselves. They were very wealthy. They had enough money to rebuild their city. So they were so smart, they were so wealthy, and they had a, an image that went with that. But here's the one thing they couldn't do, is source their own water. And so what would happen is visitors would come to visit Laodicea, 
the water from Hierapolis, which was hot and medicinal, and it was like you could see the steam rising, even, even the hot climate, and it was said that if you got into the water, it would purify your skin. And by the time it got near Laodicea, it was lukewarm. And there was, a, there, was, there, was, um, there was like a little running joke amongst the Laodiceans that you could always spot the tourists. You know, if you go to a city and there's someone walking around with an umbrella, and you say, oh, they're the tourists, buying the uh, red pillar boxes for £25 or whatever that are worth about for you know. When I lived in Cambridge, the tourists used to rip them off all the time. You could spot them a mile off. And you spot the tourists, because what they would do, if they were thirsty, they would reach into the water, drink it, and then they'd spit it out on the ground. And the Laodiceans would chuckle. <laughs> yeah, look, look at the silly tourists. Because it tasted awful, because it was neither hot nor cold. Unlike Colossal, where the water was pure. And there's a deeper meaning that Jesus is speaking of here. He's saying to the church, the hot waters of Hierapolis are known for their healing. The cold waters of Colossa are known for their purity. And the churches in those places make a difference in their, where they live. But you are neither hot nor you're cold. In the same way, the water is tepid and useless. And this is the brutal piece. This is the piece where like, he holds up the mirror. I, look, I love looking through windows. I hate looking in the mirror. And sometimes I, I like to look on, through the window at other people and think, well, they should do this, and this Laodicea business really is for them. It's not for me. But actually what Jesus does, he holds up a mirror to them. He says, your church is making no difference to anybody. What a brutal piece of feedback. Absolutely damning. When I was writing this, I thought, what would happen if our church was closed down? There was a pandemic comes, I don't want to trigger anybody, okay? <laughs> what would happen? Would the area notice? Yeah, I think it, it would. But it's a good, it's, although it's a sobering question, and it sounds like a heavy question, it is a good question to ask. And Jesus says, you say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. And what he's driving at is that the root of their inadequacy, the root of their inefficiency, the root of the fact that they don't seem to make any difference to the city, is that they are totally and utterly self Sufficient. Don't need anybody. And Jesus says, their self-sufficiency has become a badge of honour. Their wealth has become the thing that they've placed their identity in. Their wealth has brought them power. Things that have attached to them and made them who they are. And Jesus, as he holds up the mirror, says, you think you've got it all sorted, but I'm here to tell you that you are totally and utterly wrong. 
And what he says, he's going to spit them out of his mouth. That, folks, is the reality of a journey that, that many of us go through at various points in our lives. The moment of crisis, the moment of pain, often serves as a tool that used by the Lord to remind us that we are building our life on our own abilities. We're building our life on our own gifting, building our life on our education, building our life on what other people think of us. And this is a moment there can be. That for me was October, walking along Ford Road, walking my Labrador at about seven o'clock in the morning, realizing that I was building my life, not on the rock, but on other things. And it came crashing down. And so Jesus, in diagnosing the problem, a bit like a doctor, when you go and see the doctor and you get that letter and it's full of words that you have to Google and it's not very positive, Jesus is saying your self-reliance, the thing that you put your pride in, that is, is, is causing you slow spiritual death. And he says that you don't realise that you're wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind and you're naked. Wretched and naked. This idea in the scriptures that, that we have nothing without God, that we need God, that we're not able to see, that they're poor. And this is just so offensive to them because they're prided in their ability to create a salve that sells all over the world. They're known for the place that can heal your eyes. They're known for the place that has lots of money. They're known for the place that has his very expensive wall. And this is what he says, verse, verse 18. And it's a question that says, do, what kind of life do you want to live? You have riches. But he says this in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. He says, you are wealthy, but spiritually you're poor. Buy from me gold refined in the fire. Buy from me a life that is pure because I am pure. Live a life of holiness. Live a life pursuing God, it is a life of absolute and total, utter fulfillment. If you choose to follow him, give everything to him. He will meet all of your needs and more. He will bring a life overflowing of generosity and of abundance. And yet you might have the latest, whatever it is, black tunic that they would wear. And he said, but you know, you can have more. You can walk with me. It's like the psalm in Psalm 73 who says, um, the writer of the Psalm 73 says, there's a moment where he's looking at all these people who are prospering. They're, they're making loads of money and he's not. And he's feeling really fed up and he's feeling very, very sorry for himself. And then he says, until I enter the sanctuary of God, then everything makes sense. He's describing a moment when you walk into the presence of God and you're connecting with the one who made it all. And you think, yes, this is my purpose in life. This is my moment. With my saviour, everything makes sense. And then he says, then he goes, he goes on to say, wear white clothes. Well, why white clothes? White clothes is a sign of grace. It's a sign of once we were far from God and now we've come home. We cannot wear white by ourselves. Only the Lord can clothe us in white. It's an image of grace. 
It's an image of salvation, that we were far from God, that we cannot save ourselves. In a few moments, Luke is going to lead us in a simple meal of bread and wine, which reminds us that we are sinful, which reminds us that we cannot enter his presence on our own terms. We cannot enter into his presence listing our righteousness on our deeds. We enter into his presence because of his grace. And hallelujah, because I am so grateful for that. So he says, wear white. Don't wear black. Don't wear black, which symbolizes how, how clever you are and how wealthy you are. Wear white, which celebrates grace that you were once far from me. And he says, I'm going to put salve on your eyes. And they'd be like, do you know who we are, Jesus? We are the Laodiceans. And you think you know about eyes? Well, we know about eyes. And he's like, you're blind. Do you want to see the things of the kingdom? Because I will give you this thing that will heal your eyes and you will see me. And then he goes on to say, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Some people translate this to say, those whom I have a deep affection. So you've got this humongous challenge where Jesus holds up the mirror, points out all their blind spots. And right now, if this is uncomfortable, it's uncomf it was uncomfortable to think about this for the last few days... It's pretty uncomfortable to speak about it, especially when you don't have your notes. But know this. He holds you and me in deep affection. And he holds us in such deep affection, he doesn't withhold the truth. And then he says this in verse 20. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. It's this beautiful image. And if you've seen Holman Hunt's painting, it's of Jesus standing at the door. And the choice is whether we turn the handle, oh, hear the creaking of the door as it opens, and we get on our knees. And we say, it's all yours. And what he doesn't say is he's going to wave his finger. You naughty Laodiceans. He says, can I come in? Can I sit down? Can I sit next to you? Can we eat together around a table? And that is the sign of fellowship and belonging and grace and of mercy and of love. And he says, I, I, I have such an affection for you, such a, a deep love for you, that I want to come into your life and I want to sit next to you. This radical first century hospitality that means not only just a share of food, but you deeply identify with that person, that you long to be with them. And then he says this. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. 
It doesn't just stop at a meal together. Grace, love, acceptance, and freedom. It says this, and it's kind of a full loop back to the beginning of the letter to the church in Laodicea. He says this, the one who is faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation, invites us to the throne room of heaven. One of the amazing things about having small kids, I've got a 12-year, soon to be 12, next week in fact, eight-year-old and a four-year-old, is that sometimes, particularly our four-year-old, loves to come up and have a cuddle. And she'll just, she's very affectionate, and she'll just love to sit and cuddle. And there's this sense, almost this deep image here, that we get to sit next to Jesus in the throne room of glory. And it's a bit like a mirror image, isn't it, saying to the Laodiceans, you know, you've got your fancy houses up in Fallwood, and I'm joking, got your fancy Audi or electric car, you've got your fancy clothes, your education, well, you've got it all, you think. Or you could sit in the presence of the one who rules it all, in the place of healing and of wholeness and of life and of joy. And do you know, you don't do a thing to earn it. It's a gift to us. And the invitation to the Laodiceans is this. Will you let me in? Will you let me in? Will you open the door of your heart and say, Oh Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. Life is just so overwhelming right now. I'm terrified. But Lord, I'm going to allow you to highlight my blind spots where I'm not really living for you. And even though I'm scared, I'm going to say, come in. Because what you are offering is way better than anything that anyone else can offer. And that, folks, as we journey the end of this academic year as our church, as we head into the summer, as we, um, at 9 a.m., we'll be meeting. It'll be a communion, and then we'll be, all kinds of crazy stuff will happening in here. Avoid it like the plague. No, it's not. It'll be fun. You can come if you want. As we, as we finish this academic year, which has been one of significant challenge for us as a church, no two ways about that. I still think there's the invitation from Jesus to say this. Will you let me in? All the questions and frustrations, the pain that we carry. Will you let me in? Will you let me come sit next to you? Will you let me have the keys? And will you allow me to show you what it looks like to walk so deeply with me? that we do in, with him and through him immeasurably more than we can ever do by ourselves. I wonder if he's saying in this time, I want to remind you of the power and extent of my grace and my love for you, that you're precious. And he holds you in deep affection, so deep to not point out our blind spots, 
So today, folks, as we finish this series, as we close this academic year, move into the summer, will you allow him in to point out blind spots? And when, you point, when he points them out, will you say, okay, Jesus, have your way. Let's pray.